1: Today, I'm happy to be interviewing Dr. Avisha Ford, a woman whose work I greatly admire. She is a licensed clinical social worker and the founding executive director of the I Can Dream Center, therapeutic school in Illinois that serves neurodiverse learners and their families. She began her career serving inner city homeless youth in Chicago. She's a former assistant superintendent, director of special education, and assistant professor of educational leadership. She specializes in trauma-compassionate leadership, and she is the author of Benches in the Bathroom, Leading a Physically, Emotionally, and Socially Safe School Culture. Thank you so much for joining
0: us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. I'm excited to be here on your podcast. I have listened and enjoyed you for a very long time, so thank you for having me. You are so welcome.
1: I've known you for a while. I know you traveled to Africa. We talked about that. And I've never talked to you about what was the impetus for founding your own school and what
0: challenges did you face when you did that? Thank you so much, Kim, for that question. So the impetus for me founding my school, the Iker Jim Center, was really a pronounced need and really a desire to make an important impact on the school-to-prison pipeline here in the South Suburb. So at the time I was working as a director of special ed, I saw a need for students who were really not thriving in a traditional high school setting. I created this blueprint, and it was probably the third or fourth program that I developed, and I thought for sure my superintendent was going to grab it and say yes let's move forward like he had so enthusiastically before and he wasn't interested he said it wasn't the time and it wasn't the time for him or for that school district but the time was definitely then for me because these students were really pressing on my heart and what i knew is that those were the students who would drop out of school and drop into the criminal justice system and it wasn't okay for me i had to impact change What I knew at that time was how to develop programs for students with disabilities. I knew how to staff it. I knew how to select curriculum. What I didn't know was how to run a business. So that was a huge challenge. It was a learning curve and one that I took up excitedly and took a lot of classes and talked to a lot of people and engaged a lot of mentors along the way. That was one challenge.
1: It's a nonprofit, so it's not just a traditional business. You're trying to get the funding and provide the services as a nonprofit, which has its
0: own unique set of challenges. Running a nonprofit, one thing that I learned pretty quickly, and most people will come to me and say, well, can you help me start a nonprofit or how do I get a nonprofit going? And what I remind them of is that you still have to have a business plan, right? Even if your organization is social impact, you still have to have a business going. And so I learned a lot about the nuances of a nonprofit versus a for-profit business. Some of it has been exciting, right, to be able to bring people along and get them excited about the mission and for them to become volunteers, community partners, contributors, donors. A lot of it's been a challenge in and of itself. You can't get your taxes done the same way. There's certain limitations in a nonprofit that don't exist in a for-profit industry. And so learning to navigate those was its own set of learning. I know in your
1: bio, you talk about working with neurodiverse learners. Can you help us understand what is neurodiversity and is there a misconception about that that you could share with us?
0: Thank you for asking that question. So to be neurodiverse is really to have a special need. And I think that I really like the new way that we're terming our understanding of folks who have various neurodiversities because it feels more inclusive. But I also want to say that special needs or disabilities is also not a bad word. And so I find myself reminding people about that frequently. And I think that this terminology has really come to play with the new revision of the DSM, where a lot of things are sort of under that umbrella, such as ADHD, ADD, autism, spectrum disorders. So all of those things, communication disorders, all of those fall under that broader umbrella of neurodiversity. And so while there are some commonalities, they're all very unique. And that's the one thing that I would say to listeners who are really wrapping their mind around this business of neurodiversity or disability, individuals with disabilities. And it's that if you've met one person with a disability or one person who is neurodiverse, you've only met that one. And even if they have the same category. That there are uniquenesses. And one thing I think is pretty special about the icon Dream Center is while we definitely understand the categories, quote unquote, that our students fall into, we really approach them as individuals and we really try to assess their strengths and their interests and leverage those in order to help set them on a path for independence and for them to really flourish in life.
1: I'm curious because you also spoke of the word disability. And when I hear that from a choice theory perspective, I have the thought in my head that are they really disabled or are they disadvantaged in a system that doesn't teach them the way that they
0: learn best? Yeah, I think that's actually a really great point. It's actually a very great point. There's this concept of universal learning that is really popular in education settings. And it says, why don't we create a ramp, for example, for everyone, regardless of if they're actually in a wheelchair or not, because it makes it accessible for the person in the wheelchair. But if you can walk, you can also use a ramp. And so the thought is, how do we build supports in that make success and mastery a possibility for all people? And so this is actually. My big why for the Icon Dream Center, I really am interested in working with companies and organizations so that they have a more open attitude about hiring folks who are neurodiverse. How do we create these systems and workplaces that allow everyone to thrive? And what I found is that in organizations where neurodiversity is celebrated and there are accommodations built in everybody thrives so it ends up becoming an open environment for women to move into leadership it becomes an open environment for cultural racial linguistic minorities when we have a space that says okay we invite everyone to the table and now let's set the table so that everyone can really enjoy what's being served
1: i love that before we started this we were talking a little bit prior to the recording and we were talking about hope I know that one of the things that you provide at the I Can Dream Center, just simply in the name, is absolute hope. And I'm wondering, what do you think happens to people when they lose that ability or maybe they're just too
0: scared to invest in hope? Thank you for phrasing it that way, because the enemy of hope is fear. And I think that's what I've seen most frequently. Sometimes the hope has to be restored when it comes to our students who have sometimes learned helplessness or who have really internalized the limitations that have been placed on them. And so we have to help them to reimagine what their lives might be like if their dreams were boundless. But often and sometimes the toughest customer of restoring hope is the parents. A lot of times our parents have gone through a grieving process when it comes to getting to the point of accepting who their child is as a person with a disability. And so to invite them to somehow have hope again that their child might be competitively employed, they might live independently, they can likely obtain a driver's license with a little bit of support along the way feels scary. And it's like, we've already been through this grieving process and we've come to a place of acceptance. Now you're asking us to sort of open a wound that was covered and to begin to think again about what our child's capable of. The I Can Dream Center is really a place that invites the parents, the families, the learners to really embrace the what-ifs and really to open their mind to think bigger than maybe what they sort of settled at previously.
1: I love that. I wonder when you're hiring staff or teachers for your program, do you assess or ask about their capacity for hope? Not directly,
0: but I love talking about hiring. So in my book, Benches in the Bathroom, I have an entire section dedicated to um, the importance of the hiring process. And so in Benches in the Bathroom, I talk a lot about this culture of wellness I know that the success of the experience at Icon Dream Center is because of the team, right? It's because of the environment of the school. It's because of the team, because of their passion, because of their zeal. One of the things that I screen for, not just at Icon Dream Center and all the organizations that I've served, is compassion. And I always want to know a person's why. And I've asked my HR director to really get to their why. I want to know what does this mean to them. I am very unlikely to hire somebody whose why is about money or, but when I hear someone who says, oh, I have a sister who, or I want to make a difference, or this is really close to my heart because that's a person. So now I've inclined my ear to hear what you have to say. And so I feel like when your why is deeper, it really lends itself to hope with a little bit of us giving them some of the, I can dream center (laughs) Kool-Aid.
1: You mentioned a culture of wellness. Why would you say that's so important for educators, especially now with people leaving education in droves?
0: What do you offer with a culture of wellness that maybe isn't everywhere? I think a culture of wellness is really one that celebrates an employee's personhood before their contributions to the work environment. I really try to look at who my team members are as people, what their hopes are, what their aspirations are. I really invite them to bring their whole selves to work, to give us their passions and to give us their excitement so that we can use it to be restored when they come there. It's really a very multifaceted piece, but I think the biggest piece is really recognizing the humanity of the people that are there and approaching my role in leadership and all the leadership team as servants of the folks who are there and really figuring out how we might resource them with training, supports, resources, supplies, and then get out the way so they can do the work, but also creating an environment where they feel comfortable and psychologically safe to do what needs to be done. Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: That was actually going to be my next question. You may have more to say about it, but you may have already answered it. And that is, what is your
0: role and the role of leadership in developing that positive culture? Yeah, I, I think really in a nutshell, creating psychological safety. is really about making positive connections, creating an environment where the folks who are there feel like they belong. They understand the mission and how they play into that. It's about really creating breaks and space for people to sort of step away and come back, if you will. It's about making sure that we're addressing things that could be toxic to the environment from something as seemingly small as gossip in the workplace, which we have a zero tolerance policy to something as big as relational aggression. And so it's about us being vigilant and understanding the things that impact people at work and addressing it so that they can come and feel safe and excited to be there that's
1: awesome. I know that when I talk to people, one of the things that the audience really enjoys is hearing a great success story. Mm. And I don't want you to violate any kind of confidentiality or anything, but is there a story you could tell about one or maybe two of your students that truly moved you?
0: I love this question, and I wish I had a quote-unquote better answer, but the truth is, Kim, we live in success stories all the time. It's really the unofficial paycheck that we get when doing this work, this hard work. We see students succeed in ways that aren't necessarily going to make headlines, right? So some student who's finally mastered counting money, so now they can work at a place where there's a cash register, right, Which which may have been something that they hoped for. Or we may see a student who struggles with an incredible amount of social anxiety, who's now having a perfect attendance pattern, who maybe hasn't been in a building for two years, right, in a school building. And so we see all these micro successes every single day. What I'll say that is a huge success by anybody's account is a student who recently graduated in December. And what I found out, the student had come to us with a lot of trauma and a lot of things going on. We were finally about to get him to the finish line and his mother loses her housing. And so it made his attendance really difficult. So we engaged our transportation to pick him up wherever mom was able to stay from night to night. We also tried to wrap them in services so that they had their basic needs met. But because his attendance was sort of spotty, the school district wanted to drop him. And I was like, no way. So we kind of went to bat and said, listen, he's been with us for a year and a half. He's going to graduate. We're not going to end services for him in this last semester. Honestly, I was quite appalled that they were even suggesting that with full context of what was happening. We managed to get them to agree and we worked to get him finished. And at the end of the semester, when he had finished all his classes and was awaiting a high school diploma, we learned that not only had he finished, but he was the first one in his family to ever earn a high school diploma. It was just an amazing moment. And mom was elated at this and he was. But I use that as a moment to just remind my team that while we are changing the trajectory of our students' lives, that's not the end of our impact. We're impacting generations here. It's not just the ones you see in front of you. They'll have children and grandchildren whose lives will look wholly different because of the role that we played for them. And it's such important work. You'd asked me before about why it's so important to mind the environment in a school and at this time. And the reason why is because for those folks who are really doing the work, their heart's in it. And so they are more prone to burnout. We do a little bit more when we're doing the hard work. We work a little longer. When the work is a vocation for us, we maybe sacrifice in ways that aren't beneficial in the long run because we care about what's in front of us. If we can create an environment that really looks at the person and front loads it, right? We do a universal design of supports for our teachers and our team, then we can protect them from burnout and they can go longer. But we can also make an environment where they can really show up and they can do the best for our students who are so vulnerable.
1: That is wonderful. I was just reading a story this morning that I've read before. It reminds me of the work that you do. And it was the story about this man watching this little boy who didn't have a lot, but he had bread from lunch and he would feed his bread to the stray dogs that he saw in the street because they were hungry and they had no food. And the man says, Why are you giving your bread away? There's so many dogs who need food, it won't make any difference. And he said, It'll make a difference to this dog. Not to compare your students to dogs by any means, but I think that if you look at overall and all the students who need you and the ones that you get to serve, if you stay focused on the change that you're able to facilitate in the people that cross your path, I cannot imagine that is not majorly fulfilling work.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It is fulfilling, Kim. And we serve 100 students today, give or take. For the 100 we serve, there's probably a thousand more that need our services. We know that we won't be able to reach everyone. This is why one of the things we often do is provide professional development school districts. We offer a monthly, what we call parent retreat, which is really a parent support group to our families who are struggling in ways that sometimes we don't even know and we couldn't even imagine. We try to offer these supports and opportunities for the community. We have a a once-a-month Saturday experience, which is open to the community, and it's just a recreational time for our young people who don't often get invited to parties to come try on some of the social skills we've been teaching, but also just to have a good time, right? This is part of life, not just working, but also playing. These are the things that we do to try to round out the experience that we offer to the 100 students. So we try to extend our hands to these other programs and opportunities for the community. Beautiful.
1: I hate to say it, but our time is coming to an end. So I want to give you the opportunity, if there's anything
0: you'd like to add that we haven't already talked about. Just to say that I'm super excited about my forthcoming book, Benches in the Bathroom. The official release date is June 3rd, but it is available for pre-sale on Amazon.com. I would love for folks to go and grab a copy. It's about much of what we discussed today, reducing the toxicity environment to create a positive environment for teachers and educators to really serve students at their best. Thank I you. love that.
1: Who would you say
0: is the target market for your book? Is it educators? Is it administrators? Is it... It's educational leaders. And what I mean by that, it's teacher leaders, it's principals, it's superintendents, but most importantly, Kim, aspiring leaders. So folks who are thinking about dipping a toe in a leadership at some point, I want them to read this book so they can start on a path of really caring for and serving the people that'll be under their charge. Service. I think that that's the key. We're not
1: really educating students. We're serving students. Yes. Avisha, if people were looking to contact you for any further information or maybe to help with I Can Dream Center, how would they reach you?
0: Well, if they're wanting to help with I Can Dream Center, they should go to icandreamcenter.com or check out I Can Dream Center on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. If they wanted to contact me about speaking engagement or professional development or anything of the like, it would be dravisha.com.
1: Okay, terrific. Thank you. I so appreciate you joining us today, Visha, and your willingness to share your passion with our audience. I love to talk to leaders who are making a difference, and I know you really are. You could have done anything with your time today, and I'm so grateful you chose to spend it with us talking about your passion. Thank you, Kim. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Leonard Citron, a fellow choice theory enthusiast who's a partner in a private practice therapy group in Manhattan. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then.
0: This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, Remember to subscribe.